0: For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a look at what it means to become the first college graduate in your family. And two great actresses, Ellen Burstyn and Diane Ladd, share memories of making Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore in Tucson 40 years ago. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Every student faces big challenges when arriving at college. The responsibility required to succeed can bring many rewards, something that bears special emphasis for students who are the first in their family to attend college. I asked Juan Garcia, a professor of history at the University of Arizona, to share his story about becoming the first in his family to graduate, and third-year U of A student Nubia Gonzalez-Vialba, who is making her family's college dreams come true.
1: My mom wanted me to go to college, but all throughout my high school years, I I never thought college was going to be possible for me. so. I was looking at alternative decisions. I thought maybe a community college. um, I thought maybe working and saving up money. But as soon as I applied to the U of A, I remember having an advisor in high school help me. I remember she told me I couldn't because of my grades. And I was very upset. And then I remember going back into my Spanish class and I told my teacher and she was like, no, you go back in there and you tell her that you're going to go. So that's exactly what I did. And then I got a full-rate scholarship.
2: Well, college was uh, a totally different experience for me. Uh, no one in my family had ever attended college. Uh, I didn't know um, what was involved in going to college. Uh, and, in fact, I wasn't really encouraged uh, in high school to go to college. I was encouraged to go to uh, uh, a school for mechanics or uh, something that would treat, uh, teach me about trades. Uh, so whereas uh, many of my friends in high school were being told about applying for college and what to expect, I was being prepared for the, uh, for the trades. Uh, so it was a real uh, learning experience, and I, I stumbled a lot for about two years. And at that time in college, uh, there wasn't a great deal of support for uh, people who were first-generation year or gener- first generation college students. So you kind of had to find your own way, and you made a lot of mistakes in the process.
0: Well, what was the key factor in, in for you deciding not to go to trade school and instead to pursue a university education?
2: I didn't like trade school. I mean, I'm good with my hands, and I can do things, but I had some teachers in high school who were really uh, intellectually stimulating, and uh, I, I really uh, wanted to learn more. And so they... Uh, uh, took me aside and gave me additional readings and helped me with my work, and I found that I did really well uh, in in academic subjects, and so I thought, this is something I want to pursue, but again, uh, uh, it didn't look like I was going to happen.
0: What about at home? Uh, how did your parents feel about your decision, and did they uh, support you?
2: Oh, yes. Um, uh, you know, I came from a large family, and my my father was the only uh, person working, and we were struggling. We were living paycheck to paycheck, and uh, but Education was important uh, uh, to my family. And they said, you know, the least we can do is to make sure that you get through high school. And after that, we'll find ways to help you if you want to pursue anything in your career, whether it be trade school or whether it be college. Um, And in fact, my, you know, my father really made a a big sacrifice because at that time, uh, they, they would sell encyclopedias door to door. So he bought a whole set of encyclopedia, which was really expensive, and he had to pay it off on time. But he wanted those books in the house so that we could uh, uh, use them to expand our
0: understanding. That was the uh, original internet, having a set of encyclopedias in the house, you know? As a professor, Juan, do you see a difference in students who are coming in who are first-generation college students, maybe in how they apply themselves or how seriously they take the engagement?
2: I think that the the students uh, are really serious. They've overcome a lot of challenges, and they still have a lot of challenges. Uh, where the problem often occurs is the level of preparation. For a variety of reasons, uh, good study habits haven't been developed. Uh, they haven't received the uh, necessary background information or training to do college work. Uh, and so, uh, you know, even though they're they're tremendously hardworking and apply themselves, uh, they they find that they have to work harder and. Uh, uh, at times, it can become very uh, frustrating and demoralizing as they see themselves working so hard and not getting the kind of grades that they feel, uh, you know, they should be getting because then they they kind of begin to blame themselves, which is uh, really not a good idea because it's, it's not their fault. It's not because of lack of effort. It's simply a, a matter of, of uh, getting ready uh, to be better
0: prepared. Nubia, over your three-year career here at the University of Arizona, have you dealt with that kind of doubt sometimes that Juan talks about?
1: Yeah, I feel like um, procrastination is a big part of it. I feel like you have to come to school, you have to get a class on time, then after you have to go to work, you have to get to work on time, um, and then after work, it's you're just exhausted from having such a long day that you don't want to come home to doing homework. But you have to for the same reason that you want to have, you want to get a B or an A in an assignment, but it's... Not the lack of effort or the lack of time you put on it, but it's just your mind is just so out of it that you have to concentrate. You have to put time into it and especially effort. And you have to see a professor. You have to ask questions. You have to get help. I feel like you have to get all that help in order to do a good job.
2: With all the pressures that, that students face now, and the pressures, I, I worked 40 hours a week when I was in college um, because that was the way I was going to pay my tuition. Uh, and so I learned very quickly that you had to be well-organized uh, and that you had to be a, a self-starter. You had to find ways to motivate yourself because I think, as Miss Gonzalez says, you know, uh, you're exhausted. Uh, and you say, well, you know, I'll take a little nap or i wait till tomorrow and then, you know, tomorrow doesn't get any better. So, again, learning those skills, and, and sometimes you learn them while you're going through the K through 12 process. Other times you have to teach them to yourself. But uh, certainly be- being well organized. I found that uh, speaking to professors was a tremendous help to me. Um, contrary to popular opinion, uh, they don't bite. Uh, the great, great majority are sympathetic and understanding and supportive. It's a well, you know getting the courage to walk through that door, uh, and
0: tell the professor that you know you're struggling and you need some kind of help or guidance. Nubia, you mentioned you have sisters. What effect do you think your college career might have on your family?
1: Well, I have an older brother, and I would have wished he would have went to college first. That way, he could have told me, okay, this is what you got to do. This is what you have to do. So on my two younger sisters. I feel like I can impact them on going to school because my little sister's already taking nursing assistant um, in Cabot. They offer a program back in Casagran. Mm-hmm. So she's already learning um, medical assistant stuff. Um, also, she tells me she wants to go to, to ASU. I tell her, you know, U of A is better. But, you know, <laughs> she if she wants to go to ASU, that's That's fine, it's still a university. And my younger sister, she's in middle school, so she has not told me any future goals or anything. I feel like she's too small still. I didn't have no future goals when I was in middle school. I was just focusing on being with my friends and going to the movies. That's how she is right now.
0: Sure. Yeah. Well, if you can counsel her and and she ends up going to NAU, maybe you can have a three-way rivalry. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Juan Garcia is a history professor at the University of Arizona, and Nubia Gonzalez-Vialba is one of his students. Saturday, October 3rd is American Graduate Day. PBS 6 features special programming from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m., focused on organizations and individuals who are keeping kids on the path to graduation. There's a schedule at azpm.org. Thanks to Martin Scorsese's 1974 film, most of us have heard Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. But where did she go? The real answer is Phoenix, but the movie was mostly shot in Tucson in 1973 and has become a visual time capsule of the era. The Tucson Film Festival will celebrate the 40th anniversary of Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore with a screening of the film at the Loft Cinema on Saturday, October 10th. I spoke with the film's star Ellen Burstyn, the accomplished actress of stage and screen and five-time Academy Award nominee. Alice won Burstyn the Best Actress Oscar in 1974, and she still has fond memories of shooting the movie.
3: I'll tell you what came to mind, just as you said that, is standing with Marty Scorsese out in front of the house where we shot for Alice's house, watching the most beautiful sunset I've ever seen in my life. It was a a bright red sky with purple in it and pale aqua and some apricot color. And it was in all directions. It wasn't just in the direction where the sun sets in the west. The whole sky was spectacular. And Marty and I just stood there with our jaws dropped. I said, this is the most beautiful sunset I've ever seen in my life. And Marty made a joke and said, yeah, he does good work, doesn't he? Meaning God. (laughs)
0: Yes.
3: (laughs) So I don't know if that's usual for your area. It must be a blessing to live with that. Does it ever get old? Do you ever just like not pay any attention to sunsets?
0: (laughs) Well, I can tell you this much. I live uh, near uh, one side of town where there are mountains. One day I was looking at the mountains as I was walking home, and I thought, wow, have those always been there? you know like <laughs> it seemed it seemed like i hadn't really looked at them before so you know i think it's they're there for those who pay attention but arizona skies turn up so often in poetry and lyrics they're they're often referred to
3: oh my god that that was i mean that i can still see it you know i can still relive that moment with marty just the two of us standing there looking and looking all around and we stood for a long time because it kept changing and it was We were awestruck, that's what I would say. We were awestruck. That's my fondest memory of that whole time uh, in your state.
0: Did you feel confident going into the project that Alice was going to be a big role for you?
3: Oh, yeah. I don't know if you know how it came about. Have you read anything about how it... um... I would
0: like for you to tell us how it happened.
3: Okay. Well, I was shooting The Exorcist in New York, and John Calley was the head of... uh, Warner Brothers, and he was looking at the at the rushes that, you know, the day shooting every day, and he called my agent and said, we'd like to do another movie with her. So they started sending me all the scripts that they had on their shelves, and this was in 1973, and it was just the beginning of the women's movement, where we were all kind of waking up to the fact that, as uh, I say in the film, I mean, it's my life. It's not some man's life that I'm helping him out with. And that was the, the consciousness at the time, that we were all kind of assistant people. When I read all of these scripts, all of the scripts, the, the women were the old paradigm. They were either the loyal wife who sits home, while the husband goes out and saves the world and comes back and she makes him a nice drink. Or they were a prostitute with a heart of gold. Or they were a victim, being chased by bad guys and then saved by the hero. And I just wasn't interested in any of that. So I said to my agent, tell them that I would like to do a, a film from a woman's point of view. And... My agent came up with Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore with a script by Bob Getchell And it it was different than it ended up, but it had the beginnings of that. So I sent it to Warner Brothers, and they liked it and bought it. And uh, then when I got back to California, they said, who would you like to direct it? Would you like to direct it, they asked me. Oh, really? And I said to John Kelly, I'm not ready to act and direct at the same time. Then I said, I want somebody new and exciting. And I called Francis Coppola, who I knew, and I said, who do you know that's new and exciting? And he said, well, look at a film called Mean Streets. And Warners actually owned Mean Streets, but it hadn't been released yet. And so they showed it to me. And, of course, I was so overwhelmed with the brilliance of it. And I asked to meet Marty and so we had a meeting in John Kelly's office and I told Marty how much I liked the film and I said, the only thing is I I want this film to be from a woman's point of view and you only have one woman in your film and she's not in very much so I can't really tell if you know anything about women, do you? And Marty said, no, but I'd like to learn. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was the best answer he could have given.
0: Well, that is um, a good answer, yeah.
3: Yeah. So uh, then we went to work uh, on the casting and the the script.
0: The thing that I think is the most compelling about your performance in Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore is the incredible range and subtlety of emotion that you get to play uh, a lot of times in your scenes with Alfred Lutter as your son Tommy, you get to be exasperated, you get to be proud of him, you get to be annoyed with him. All of these subtle shades that, like you like you said, were not always written into the roles for women.
3: I was a mother of a of a son that age. You know, my son played the boy next door, um, the son of the neighbor.
0: My <laughs> no, neighbor. I didn't know
3: that. He wasn't a, an actor although he did, and he pleased me so much in the scene where he's coming back from the funeral of my husband, and he's sitting in the front seat, and I'm in the back seat, and uh, I'm getting out of the car, and I just ad-libbed, goodbye, Harold, I think his name was, goodbye, Harold, and he said in this really sweet, the kind of voice he would have coming from a funeral, goodbye, Alice, and I I was so touched. First of all, by hearing my son call me my character name instead of um, mom. Yeah. Uh, but secondly, just the the way he had exactly the right tone. So I was very familiar with that with that role of the mother and the um, all of the different facets of it. You know, and as a matter of fact, many of the uh, lines that we put in were conversations between my son and I found their way into the script so I didn't think in terms of individual emotions to play but just really a relationship and what a mother-son relationship is like and what it consists of which is a lot of different emotions
0: Was it cathartic for you to do Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore after having to be so stressed out on camera for so long shooting The Exorcist?
3: You know, I remember somebody asking me when I was uh, uh, being interviewed about um, Requiem for a Dream how I felt at the end of the day after those difficult and crazy scenes.
0: Harrowing, yeah.
3: Yeah, and I said exhilarated, hmm. and that's the way I I always feel after a day of shooting good material. I mean, if it's if I'm shooting something that is not so wonderful, I don't feel exhilarated at all. But working on something like Alice or The Exorcist or Requiem for a Dream, which are you know as high a quality as you could ever hope to work with, I just at the end of the day always felt light and happy and excited. Doing heavy material doesn't have a negative pull on you because you're you're dealing with your creativity, and your creativity is always nourishing.
0: You can hear more of my conversation with Ellen Burstyn talking about Same Time Next Year and her experience playing the role of God at azpm.org. Talking to Diane Ladd is an adventure. From politics to philosophy to how to fix the American film industry, the Mississippi-born actress, producer, and director is not shy about sharing her thoughts. That quality was shared by Florence Jean Castleberry, known as Flo, the big-mouthed, big-haired, southern-born waitress that Diane Ladd played in Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. I asked Diane Ladd to tell me about the long scene in the film where she and Ellen Burstyn are laying in the Arizona sun talking about their relationships with men.
4: You know, that was an improvisation that Maude let us put in the script. When we went to rehearse, we did these great improvisations that he had uh, written up, on, uh, you know, taped and everything. Yeah. And do you know that some dope addicts broke into the hotel and stole all our tapes?
0: Oh, no. <laughs> oh, yeah?
4: Talk about being tested. My God, Mr. Scorsese was being tested. One tried to break into my door in a hotel at about 4.30 in the morning, and I sat up and saw somebody breaking in. I, it was kind of weird, you know. They I... it, it, they found they caught him later. Yeah. But they say in every problem there's a gift. So the scene you're talking about, it, it came out of um, us talking to Marty. Let's do it, you know.
0: That's great. Yeah. yeah. That's great that he just let you fly. It was a
4: great film, wasn't it?
0: It was. It, yeah. it, it it really, as somebody who grew up being very close to my mom, I could see a lot of our relationship reflected in Ellen Burstyn and, and Alfred Lutter's performances. Oh, that is
4: so great.
0: Well, yeah, but it also reminds me what a precocious big mouth kid I was. because <laughs> I could, I could act up just like he could, you know.
4: And did you have a friend like Jodie Foster?
0: No, I wasn't that lucky. I didn't. I didn't have a friend like that.
4: Well, I told you, Mr. Scorsese is a genius. You know, it was great. I worked so hard as an extra that the extra said to me, "Honey, are you are you an actress or a waitress?" Because <laughs> I was serving people constantly cold water to keep them cool because it was hot in the restaurant. Mm-hmm. You know, and they'd have to turn off the air conditioner while we were shooting. So I said, "I'm both right now. I'm both." <laughs> And my daughter, Laura Dern, in the counter and the scene where where uh, Ellen and uh, Chris Christopherson make up at the end,
0: you mm-hmm. know? Yeah.
4: Laura is sitting at the counter.
0: Oh, I didn't notice her. She's like, yeah.
4: um, I don't know how old she is, eight or nine, nine or ten, I don't know. Hmm. I can't remember. But she was at that counter in that scene. And she had to eat for like eight takes, eight ice creams. <laughs> And Marty Scorsese said, Diane, your daughter's going to be an actress. She ate eight ice creams without getting sick.
3: <laughs> it was a way to
4: have her on the set watching her mother at work, not to put her in show business, God only knows, but just to have her with me, you know. It's good for the kids to see where the parents work. It's good for them to know what sure. the parents are going through and where they are. But, of course, Alice Doesn't Live Here anymore. was my first Oscar nomination and um i lost to the great ingrid bergman and then i won over her in the mother country how about that
0: <laughs> when you got Alluding your back ingrid
4: bergman is not exactly chopped liver you know
0: what i mean oh no no not at all <laughs> no. well one thing i thought was neat about um your portrayal of flo is that she's got a big mouth but she's got big ears she listens really well and there are those scenes oh, where you're a listening oh
4: what thing to say mark
0: well it's there and i wondered where the key, when that came I, from I
4: Wow, I just taught a class for uh, UCLA. They asked me if I would come in for a week to teach an international group of kids how to act in front of the camera. And of course, there's not a lot of difference between acting in front of the camera and the theater in my mind, except that you project and make it bigger for the theater. You know? Yeah. Because the camera catches every detail. And it was interesting because I told them that the most important key... To acting, which can help them in life, whether they decide to be a professional actor or not, is to be a good listener. You cannot be a great actor without being a good listener.
0: In the scene where you and Ellen Burstyn uh, retire to the bathroom to talk about Mm -hmm. her situation, you are her audience in that scene you are mm-hmm. you are riveted on her. I thought that was very big of you as a performer to be there for Ellen in that way and to let Thanks. her do her thing. It was like you were supporting her as an as an actor, but also supporting her in character, you know?
4: Right, I was, and I want you to send her a note reminding her of that.
0: <laughs> I'm supposed to talk to her next week. I thought I might ask you also of anything else that you might want to tell me about Ellen before I talk to her.
4: No, I'll let her speak for herself, <laughs> except that we were doing research for the, the play, and she had just done The Exorcist Yeah, and uh, said it was kind of a scary experience. Mm-hmm. And I had a little ring on my finger with a cross on it, and so we went out doing research, she and I and Vic Tayback and Valerie Curtin, and we went to um, four different places. They were nightclubs usually at night where waitresses were serving, just studying waitresses and chefs and people, you know, for the movie, doing our own research. We said to the waitress, should we have a drink? We said, what is a rattlesnake cocktail? <laughs> okay, we'll try one to find out what they're serving. and. Arizona. So I had mine and I said, you know, I don't think they put any alcohol at all in here. This tastes like soda pop. I was very thirsty because it was very hot and dry in the desert. So I said, okay, I said, I'll have a second one. I had a second one and I still said, boy, I don't think they put any alcohol in there. (laughs) (laughs) And Ellen said, I wish that they would play Hey Jude for me up there at the restaurant. I mean, the band would play Hey Jude. Now, I had sang with a band in New Orleans at age 16. And so I said, oh, you want them to play Hey Jude? I'll, I'll get them to play Hey Jude. I'll sing it for you, Ellen. And I got up. I went up to the band and said, when they broke, and I said, excuse me, could you play Hey Jude and I could sing it for you? So I sang it. When I got through singing it, I said, excuse me, could you play Hey Jude for Ellen? <laughs> I didn't remember that I had sang it. And I sang it a second time. And I was about to sing it a third time when Vic and Ellen were giving me a, a, a high sign. Come on. Come on back, Diane. Come here. So I went back to the table, and I sat down. And I said, can you believe how rude they were? They wouldn't even play Hey Jude for you. <laughs> so my warning is, when in Arizona, be careful with those name cocktails. Because <laughs> I didn't even taste the alcohol, and that one had knocked me for a loop. So much so that Ellen said, oh, I'm so nervous after doing the exercise. She said, Oh, what a beautiful ring that is you have with a cross on it. I said, oh, you want it? Hey, I'll give this to you to protect you. And the next morning, I woke up and I thought, my God, what happened? I gave my ring away. I gave my ring away. And I went to Ellen and I said, Ellen, you know about my ring? Oh, yes, she said thank you. I love it so much. So I didn't have the guts to ask for my ring back. (laughs) So again, watch out. If you're going to go do research, be careful about those desert cocktails. But I truly loved working for Martin Scorsese. And I was so glad that he chose me to create the role of Flo. It brought me a lot of good in my life. It started my career. I mean, it started my career in a big way. It gave me the Oscar nomination.
0: My guest was actress, director, and producer Diane Ladd. You can hear more of our chat at azpm.org. The Loft Cinema celebrates the 40th anniversary of Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore with a screening of a newly restored print of the film on Saturday, October 10th. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.